Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast episode contains references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's the morning of Sunday the 8th of July 1928 in Adelaide, the city of churches, and inside one of the smaller houses of worship, the neat brick Presbyterian church in the suburb of Colonel Light Gardens, recently arrived preacher Graham Maxwell is on a holy roll with a sermon that's touching the hearts and souls of his small congregation. He asked the faithful to reflect on Psalm 24's third and fourth verses. This is where the good book asks... Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? Before answering, He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Probationary Minister Graham Maxwell explains with a story. He tells of a humble washerwoman who's walking along a street when she sees broken glass on the footpath that might pose a danger to passers-by. Stopping and stooping to clean it up, she cuts and dirties her hands, much to the amusement of a passing bishop and a policeman who make fun of this poor, silly creature. That night, the washerwoman has a dream. She's at the gates of heaven alongside the two men who've mocked her. St. Peter demands to see all of their hands. Much to their horror, the bishop and the policeman's hands are found unclean and so they're turned away from heaven. When the washerwoman presents her hands, they've been cleansed by the grace of God, and St. Peter ushers her through the pearly gates. Preacher Graham Maxwell explains that the moral of the story is, to get to heaven, you have to keep yourself clean of sin. And he urges the congregation to be like the washerwoman and do all the good they can. Since he was posted to this small Adelaide church about a month ago, the young pastor's sermons have struck deep chords. While Graham Maxwell is physically slight, at the pulpit he's a big presence and he grows each week in confidence and eloquence. Church attendance is up and this new preacher has become a welcome guest in the houses of the faithful. So, here's the puzzle. Do any of these churchgoers get a strange feeling as Graham Maxwell preaches about bishops and policemen who look down on true humble servants of God? Do any of them feel a shiver up their spines as this minister pours tea or passes biscuits in their sitting rooms? It's hard to believe that no one experiences deja vu. That's because the man in the collar isn't Graham Maxwell, any more than 
he's a Presbyterian. Rather, the man in their church and in their homes is 1928's most notorious figure, and his name, photograph, and the scandalous story of the broken commandments he's left in his wake have been plastered all over Australian newspapers since the start of the year. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the five-part Forgotten Australia miniseries, Thou Shalt Not Kill. The next four instalments will be released in the coming weeks, but if you want to hear all five parts of this story right now ad-free, they're available as a thank you to Patreon supporters. Supporters can also access bonus episodes available nowhere else and download the exclusive audiobook of Australia's Sweetheart. And as a supporter, you'll get a big shout-out thank you right here in Forgotten Australia. So a big cheers to Lynn Holland, Tegan Bailey, Graham Williams, Jack Farler, Ian Brennan and Zoe Reynolds for their recent support. For more information, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia or simply click on the link in the show notes. In early 1923, Ethel Constance White was, at just 17, already a teacher in northwestern Tasmania. Back in those days, it wasn't unusual for a girl of such tender age to take charge of one of the state's many far-flung little schoolhouses. Though young, Miss Ethel White was good at her job and beloved by her students and their parents. She knew these people because she was one of them. Ethel's mother and father, Annie and Albert White, were simple folk who lived in the little timber milling town of Railton, about 12 miles from Devonport. Albert worked as a labourer and Annie took care of their six children, three boys and three girls. Ethel was their middle daughter, born on the 23rd of January 1906. She went to state school in Railton and qualified for Devonport High School. Dark-haired with a nice smile, Ethel was smart, sang and played piano. After getting her intermediate pass, she followed in her older sister Edna's footsteps by taking up teaching. The Advocate newspaper in Burnie was to describe Ethel this way, quote, Her happy, obliging disposition and her bright and winsome manner had gained for her many friends. Parents of children who she taught recalled the kindness and tact which she displayed as a schoolteacher, her invariable good humour under all the little worries which are the lot of girls in charge of schools in the back country, her readiness to assist at any of the little functions which were held in aid of charitable objects, and of the church of which she was such an enthusiastic adherent. In early 1923, Ethel was teaching in Lower Wilmot, 25 miles west by road from her hometown. Here, as a devout and active Methodist, she came into the orbit of the district's new preacher, Ronald Jeeves Griggs. Ronald was six years older than Ethel and hailed from a well-off family on the southern side of Tasmania. He was a man both of the world and of the cloth. He'd been a boy soldier in the Great War before recently taking up this, his first Methodist home missionary position in Wilmot. Ronald had thinning brown hair that he brushed back from a narrow face with close-set blue eyes under a brow that gave him the serious look of a man older than 23. While he wasn't physically imposing, standing a smidge under 5'5 and weighing about 120 pounds, Ronald had presence in the pulpit. He and Ethel hit it off, and the preacher and the schoolteacher began courting. Ethel's mother thought Ronald was impressive, not least because he'd enlisted aged just 17. Mrs. Annie White would later say, quote, He was always a perfect gentleman, both to me and to Ethel. He used to visit our place constantly and told us all about the wonderful things he did at the war. He said he was made a dispatch rider because he was an expert horseman and had many hairbreadth escapes while in the line in France. He said that he was later gassed and invalided home. He was very entertaining. Mrs. White was surely also impressed by his sterling Methodist lineage. On both his mother and father's sides, Ronald Jeeves Griggs came from Tasmanian Puritans who'd pioneered European settlement along the Huon River. His maternal great-grandfather was English settler William Jeeves, who came to Hobart in 1842. William had been given a land grant by Lady Jane Franklin at the settlement of Franklin, named for her husband, Tasmania's governor, Sir John Franklin. 
William Jeeves and his family lived there until 1850 when they took up new land 10 miles farther south and established orchards. This area became known as the town of Jeevesston. By the 1920s, the clan's members were so numerous in the district that a constable doing his rounds on a Sunday morning reported counting 260 Jeeveses going about their church business. They were hard-working orchardists and God-fearing folk, much like their near neighbours, the Griggses. By the early 1850s, Joseph Griggs, Ronald's paternal grandfather, was buying up land around Franklin and planting a lot of apples. Like the Jeeveses, the Griggses were fruitful and they multiplied. Truth newspaper would later report, quote, Wherever one goes in the Franklin district, he will meet somebody of the name of Griggs. Relations abound everywhere and are mainly of an intensely religious temperament. Family records at Ancestry.com.au show that in 1898, Herbert Griggs, Joseph's son, married Kate Jeeves, daughter of Stephen, granddaughter of William. From the merging of these two Huon tributaries came a son, Ronald Jeeves Griggs, born on the 30th of July, 1899. More children were to follow, three sons and a daughter. The family was active in the church and also in the temperance movement. Like their people before them, they worked hard and they obeyed God's laws. As far as man's laws, well, Herbert Griggs did fall from grace on one occasion. In August 1910, he appeared in Franklin Court to face the grave charge of riding his bicycle on the footpath. Herbert pleaded guilty and explained he'd only committed the offence because the roads were in such shocking condition. Being a good citizen who'd been forced to do a bad thing, Herbert wanted it known that he'd ensured no one was on the footpath before he'd taken this drastic step, and he'd also gone very slowly to ensure public safety. Herbert Griggs was fined one shilling. That this was his only recorded legal transgression just serves to underscore how upstanding the Griggs family was and how proud their reputation as Methodists. Young Ronald grew up steeped in this religion. His people farmed apples, which in the popular imagination featured fairly heavily in The Good Book. But from an early age, at Sunday school, Ronald would have learned that the Old Testament didn't actually reference apples as the forbidden fruit. As a Christian, what he had to do, as Adam had not done with Eve, was resist temptation into evil. Young Ronald went to Franklin State School. He was good at drawing, would have a go at football, tennis and cricket, and perform recitals at school events. He seemed a boy of sound moral character. When Ronald found a silver watch on the side of the road, he took out a newspaper notice two weeks running to find its owner. He sought no reward, asking only that the cost of the advertisement be covered by whoever the watch belonged to. Ronald was academically bright, several times coming top of his class, and in November 1912, he won first prize in an essay contest in a Huon District literary competition. His subject was a popular one in this Tasmanian neck of the woods, the life and times of Sir John Franklin. Though Ronald's people prospered where this colonial giant had once walked, to a schoolboy like Ronald, Sir John's governorship of Tasmania had to be the least exciting thing about him. As a young naval officer, he had in 1802 been aboard Matthew Flinders' ship Investigator when it became the first vessel to circumnavigate Australia. Sir John had been at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805 and fought in the War of 1812 against the United States. Then he'd led Arctic expeditions, including one that went so wrong he famously boiled and ate his leather boots. In 1828, Sir John married Jane, who'd prove a powerful supporter in his endeavours, including those six years as Tasmania's governor from 1837, his munificence making farming life possible for the Jeeves and Griggs clans. Not long after leaving Tasmania in 1845, Sir John commanded an Arctic expedition to find the Northwest Passage. His good self and all those aboard his ships Erebus and Terror were never seen again despite Lady Franklin's efforts to organise search and rescue expeditions. Preparing his essay on Sir John Franklin, Ronald would have learned his had been a big heroic life, made possible by a strong devoted wife. Ronald wasn't an obvious candidate for such adventure and romance. 
Temperamentally, Ronald was a bookish lad and reportedly something of a loner. Physically, his small stature saw him initially rejected for army cadets, though later, having squeaked past the minimum height of 5'4", he was accepted and would serve four years, as well as doing a year of the then-compulsory militia training. Yet, when the big adventure beckoned in August 1914, Ronald was too young and too small to enlist in the AIF and fight in the Great War. Four years later, with the army having lowered its height requirements, he was old enough to sign up with parental consent. Ronald was three months past his 19th birthday when he embarked the Zealandia in Melbourne in early October 1918 as part of the 3rd General Service Reinforcement. So, he wasn't a 17-year-old boy soldier, and despite what he'd say, Private Ronald Griggs wasn't a Western Front dispatch rider who had daring escapes before being gassed by the Hun and invalided home. That's because when he reached London in early December 1918, the war to end all wars had come to an end. Despite the armistice robbing him of his chance at adventure, Private Griggs still had grunt work to do. Detached to the 12th Battalion, he was sent to France where the AIF was demobilising. It was in the French port town of Le Havre that Ronald became friends with a fellow digger named A.R. Stevens who hailed from Adelaide. A.R. Stevens would later say he'd been impressed by the young Tasmanian because, unlike so many other Anzacs, he didn't succumb to the fleshly pleasures on offer in France. Ronald did have an encounter with a prostitute that was to change his life. The story he'd later tell Smith's Weekly had the quality of a biblical parable, while also suggesting that for him, sexual temptation and spiritual salvation were entwined from the start. Quote, I was in France with the rest of the diggers. There was a crowd of us in a wine cafe, laughing and talking, and a girl off the streets was standing near us. One of our chaps used the name of Christ. The girl turned around and said, don't talk like that about that man. That man loved the like of us. Coming from such a rouged mouth, this statement struck Ronald as profound. Quote, I stopped the girl and expressed my wonder at her speech. She whipped round on me and said, Why should you wonder? What are you doing for Christ more than I am? Good question. What was he doing for Christ? That night, Ronald wandered until he found himself at a roadside crucifix. Quote, Suddenly I saw the cross and, kneeling down, cried that if I could be of use, I would give my life to Christ's service. That street in France had been his road to Damascus, but Ronald might die before he had a chance to serve his God. In January 1919, he was invalided back to England, not as a result of gas, but of germs. Ronald had contracted Spanish flu. He was hospitalised for six weeks, suggesting he had a very nasty case of the bug then burning its way across the world and every week killing thousands of men his age. Ronald recovered and served the rest of the year in England. There, alongside his friend A.R. Stevens, he joined the details breaking down and packing up major military and medical camps that had been used by the Anzacs. Ronald returned to Australia at the end of February 1920 and was discharged as medically unfit. He went back to Franklin to work on the family orchard. In May 1922, Ronald and several members of his family helped to establish a Methodist guild which offered the faithful an organisation for regular social and educational get-togethers. Their first speaker was Reverend Henry Nucky originally from Victoria, now a minister in Hobart. He was to be a regular visitor to the Guild and become a friend and mentor to Ronald. Reverend Nucky was an example of a popular, happily married Methodist minister whose calling had taken him to interesting places. The Griggs family didn't just farm fruit, they also bred fowls, and in 1922, Ronald became secretary of Franklin's new poultry club, which in September put on its first show. By rights, this should have just been a bit of fun, but it wound up with Ronald at the centre of his first public controversy. After the poultry show was over, he came under attack in the letters pages of the local newspaper, The Hewan Times. A disgruntled breeder, calling himself pedagogue, wrote that he and another veteran exhibitor had withdrawn from the event on account of Ronald's behaviour. 
He hadn't played fair, favouring some competitors and discouraging others, while overall he displayed a lack of tact, civility and courtesy. These were fighting words, and in the next issue of the newspaper, Ronald hit back. He resented the imputation of rudeness and unfairness. He wrote that he and the committee weren't going to have any outside people telling them how to run their shows. And Ronald challenged Pedagog to make public the circumstances of him refusing to let them show their birds. Feathers flying, Pedagog wrote another letter. He called Ronald's reply feeble, childish and ridiculous and accused him of lacking the courage to explain his decision. And when it came to dealing with outsiders, the brash young secretary had much to learn. Ronald Griggs wasn't about to let sleeping chickens roost. In his next letter, he publicly named Pedagog and his pal. He also shamed them by explaining at great length how he'd refused them entry because they'd left it far too late to pay their show fees and then had made unreasonable demands that he reorganise the show to accommodate them. Ronald said the committee had ratified his decision and he felt that the public would now see the sense in his actions. Pedagog wasn't letting it go, and he wrote back to say he wasn't either of the so-named men, but on their behalf disputed they'd been given the proper chance to pay their fees. They'd been wronged by Ronald, as had other poultry enthusiasts that he could name. But it was Pedagog's sign-off that likely elicited a guilty cackle from readers who'd been following this face-off between the foul fanciers. Quote, this small match has caused a big blaze, which has undoubtedly scorched the Franklin Poultry Club Committee and Secretary, and is still burning. But still, we must admire a man, if only a small one, who stands to his guns. From this obscure, century-old Chook controversy, it's possible to see that Ronald was an erudite and confident young man who'd stand his ground to state his case while laying out the evidence and making counter-accusations. With this done, he'd be confident that common sense would find him not guilty. Maybe. But he might also lose in the court of public opinion because, well, he came off as a bit of a self-righteous prig. Ronald Griggs didn't, as far as I've found, continue the poultry club argument in the Hewan Times after that last letter. Possibly because in November 1922, he had other things on his mind. Ronald hadn't forgotten that promise he'd made to God back in France, and now he decided to become a Methodist minister. Given his mother was an organist at the Franklin Church and his father was in the choir, they were surely pleased and proud their eldest boy would one day be the Reverend Ronald Griggs. This, though, was a few years off. To follow his calling, Ronald would have to study, pass exams, get practice preaching, do more study, and then spend four years as a probationary minister wherever the Methodist Conference in Melbourne decided to send him. If everything went according to plan, he could expect to be ordained in 1930. Ronald got cracking, doing preparatory studies in Hobart, and then got experience in the pulpit on the city's church circuit. Next came home mission work. Tasmania's Methodist executive appointed him to the small northwestern town of Wilmot. Before leaving to take this role, Ronald, on the 8th of April 1923, conducted the evening service at the Franklin Methodist Church. The pews were packed, and he did his people proud. The Hewan Times reported, quote, The young preacher showed that he is possessed of considerable talent for the profession, which he has taken up, and he should have a very successful career. Ronald was made welcome in Wilmot with a church social that included supper, musical items, and rounds of games to conclude this pleasant evening. By this time, Ethel White was in charge of the state school in nearby Lower Wilmot, and Ronald would regularly travel there to perform Sunday services. It wasn't long before the preacher and the teacher were an item but their togetherness in the Wilmot area didn't last much longer. Ethel was moved to another school 30 miles from Wilmot, and for the next six or seven months, they only saw each other on weekends. At the start of October, Ronald sat a theological exam in Hobart and scored top marks. 
This success, along with the favourable impression he'd created through his home missionary work, led to Hobart's Methodist Synod the next month officially recommending Ronald as a candidate for the ministry. And it was around this time, the end of 1923, that Ronald asked Ethel to marry him. But their wedding would have to wait because from early March 1924, Ronald was to attend Queen's College at the University of Melbourne. He'd write home to tell his mother and father of his academic results, with this news published in the Huon Times. Readers learned that the local boy made good was an excellent student, winning a £75 entrance examination scholarship and, in his first year, achieving the highest average marks and also topping Greek. In Melbourne, Ronald also got more experience preaching, taking the pulpit at Punt Road Methodist Church. During the two years he was at Queen's College, Ronald only saw Ethel three times while back in Tasmania on holidays. In late February 1926, having graduated with his licentiate in theology, Ronald was accepted by the Methodist Conference in Melbourne as a probationary minister. He'd made it known to the conference that he was willing to do missionary work in the islands. His future wife was also willing to make this sacrifice. At the start of March, church elders decided on Ronald's first appointment. For the next year, he was to be probationary minister to the Methodist faithful in the little town of Ridgely in northwest Tasmania. If the Methodist committee had stuck to that decision, this podcast wouldn't be happening. But a few days later, the decision makers changed their minds, cancelling Ronald's appointment to Ridgely and giving it instead to a local church chairman. Soon after that, Ronald was given the new news. He'd be going to Omeo in East Gippsland. On the 7th of April 1926, to the strains of the Bridal March, Ethel Constance White walked down the aisle of Railton's Methodist Church on the arm of her father Albert. The bride wore a charming frock of mole gabardine, and she carried a gorgeous floral bouquet made by her mother Annie. As Ethel joined Ronald Jeeves Griggs at the altar, the large congregation rose to sing O Perfect Love. This is a hymn whose lyrics are about two people entering an eternal bond that's impervious to pain and to death. United in holy matrimony, the newlyweds left the church amid showers of confetti and attended a big luncheon at Ethel's aunt's house. Toasts toasted, wedding gifts unwrapped, and congratulatory telegrams read aloud to many a cheer, young Mr. and Mrs. Griggs boarded the evening train to Devonport. After spending a few days there, they sailed on the SS Una to Melbourne. The honeymoon was over. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. For Ronald and Ethel Griggs, getting from Melbourne to Omeo meant eight hours on a train to Brothen and then four more hours on winding roads in a large touring motorcar. All up, about 260 miles, an exhausting day's journey that finished in the mountain town at eight or nine at night. Their new home was Omeo's Parsonage, a comfortable single-storey double-fronted weatherboard house on the rising main road out of the town. It was a pleasant place to live, with a lawn, vegetable gardens and a back paddock that sloped to a nice little creek. Adjoining the parsonage on one side was Omeo's simple wooden Methodist church. On the other side of the property were neighbours Herbert and Annie Mitchell, with Mr Mitchell conducting a store in the town. Across the road from the parsonage stood the Hilltop Hotel, which was managed by a Mr and Mrs Shanahan. While the parsonage didn't have the phone on, the hotel was connected and Mr and Mrs Shanahan were all too happy for people to call there if they wanted to speak to the parson. 
Omeo Shire had first been settled by Europeans three quarters of a century earlier when gold was discovered. By the mid-1920s, that boom was long over, but the area was still home to some 2,300 people. Many of its well-to-do citizens lived in homesteads on sheep and cattle properties around the district. So, on Sunday mornings, Ronald would conduct a service at the Omeo Church and then, after lunch, he'd hold another one at a church called The Walnuts some 20 miles southeast before conducting another at a place called Doctor's Flat five miles farther on. To do his Sunday rounds and to generally be a good shepherd to his widely scattered flock, Ronald was going to have to cover a fair bit of distance. Shorter journeys Ronald could make on horseback, which he greatly enjoyed because he really was an expert horseman. But for those longer trips, he bought a Harley-Davidson motorcycle with a sidecar. Some newspaper accounts would later say that Ronald eased into the community and was quickly as popular as he had been in Wilmot. But other stories had him as too fiery in the pulpit and too cold when dealing with his congregation outside of church. It's possible both were true. Any outsider in a position of authority was likely to receive mixed reactions in such a small, conservative community. Ethel had given up her teaching work after getting married, a sacrifice then expected of women. Back in Tasmania, she'd not only had a career, but had also been surrounded by her family and friends, her students and their parents. Compared with this, her new life in Omeo would have been a little on the lonely side. She didn't have the same opportunities as Ronald to forge new relationships. And when she fell pregnant soon after their arrival, she would have been advised to rest and to nest in the parsonage. Although some newspaper stories briefly referenced her being well-respected and well-liked in Omeo, it was telling that no one was to come forward and say they'd been her close friend. While Mrs. Mitchell from next door was to say she'd known Ethel well, having had her over for tea on a few occasions, she'd never been invited into the parsonage for reciprocal refreshments. It's not known whether this was because Ethel was particularly retiring or because her husband Ronald had decreed their house was off limits to visitors. Yet one local woman would be invited in, not just for tea, but to stay and her presence in the parsonage was to make Ethel Griggs even more of an outsider in Omeo, as the townspeople would come to pity her. Ronald Griggs was to say his marriage to Ethel had soured after the first few months. His wife would get into bad moods, and he couldn't discern the reason. But the reason wasn't hard to discern. She lived at a property about five miles southeast of Omeo at Tongio Gap, just one week after they moved into the parsonage, Ronald and Ethel paid a visit to wealthy grazier John Condon. District born and bred, his father having half a century earlier established the homestead and property at Tongio Gap, this man and his wife Frances had raised their six children, four daughters and two sons, as good Methodists. John Condon was impressed by Ronald Griggs, and he'd invite the minister and his wife to visit again and even to stay overnight. So John didn't have any concerns when Ronald struck up a friendship with his second oldest daughter, Lottie. Ancestry.com.au family records tell us that Lottie Elizabeth Condon was born on the 9th of October 1907 in Omeo. So in April 1926, she was 18 and a half, 18 months younger than Ethel Griggs. Tall and slender, Lottie was pretty, her blue-grey eyes and pale face framed by bobbed dark hair. Although she lived in the high country, Lottie kept up with high street fashions, and photos from the time show her in stylish dresses worn with little hats and long necklaces. Lottie might have affected elements of Roaring Twenties style, but Truth Newspaper was to report that the girl was no flapper her socialising restricted to church picnics, the occasional sports meeting or a trip to the moving pictures. What Lottie Condon really loved was being on horseback, and this was a pleasure she had in common with her new friend Ronald. It was soon known that they went for rides together along bush tracks and over the rugged ranges. What also set tongues wagging was that they'd zip around the district on his Harley Davidson, Ronald at the handlebars, Lottie 
tucked into the sidecar. Yet, given they were so open, could there really be anything to such gossip? John Condon certainly didn't think so, and gave his blessing for Lottie to go and stay at the parsonage for a weekend in May of 1926. Lottie came again, this time for a week just after Christmas. Both visits were apparently at Ethel's invitation. If that was true, given how close they were in age, Ethel might have seen Lottie as a potential friend. Instead, she'd become her nemesis. One afternoon during that post-Christmas visit, the now heavily pregnant Ethel came into the kitchen from doing the ironing to find Lottie reclining on the couch while Ronald stroked her head. Ethel demanded to know what was going on. Lottie said nothing untoward had been happening. Ronald said it wasn't what it looked like. Their guest simply had a headache that he was trying to soothe. Ethel didn't believe them. She became hysterical and demanded that Lottie leave the parsonage. Incensed by her reaction, Ronald told his wife to apologise to Lottie. Ethel refused and Ronald ordered her to go to bed. After this incident, in Ronald's version, Ethel, full stop, refused him any further sexual relations. The kitchen showdown had at least taken place behind closed doors, but a far more public spectacle was just around the corner. On the 3rd of January 1927, Ethel was in Herbert Mitchell's store in town when Ronald pulled up outside on the motorbike with Lottie in the sidecar. He came inside and said to his wife that they, they, wanted Ethel to come back to the parsonage. She replied loudly, Take home the one you have in the car. I will get home as best I can. Ronald left the store. Ethel returned to the parsonage about half an hour after this public outburst. Lottie was still there, helping Ronald mow the lawn. Ethel went inside without speaking to either of them. When Ronald went looking for his wife, she was nowhere to be found. He enlisted Lottie and together they searched, eventually seeing Ethel coming back up from the bottom of the paddock. In Ronald's later version, Ethel was all wet, the implication being she'd thrown herself in the creek, even though she was eight and a half months pregnant. More likely she was wet simply because it had been raining that afternoon. Inside the parsonage, Ethel demanded to be given dry shoes because she wanted to go outside again. Ronald said he believed she was unfit to be going anywhere in her mental state. He fetched Mrs. Mitchell from next door to help calm his wife. By this stage, Ethel was back outside and Mrs. Mitchell followed her around the paddock for a while. Ethel didn't say a word to the woman, saying to Ronald when she came back inside that she'd be fine if only they'd stop following her everywhere. Then Ethel locked herself in a room for about an hour and demanded to see a doctor. Ronald called in Omeo's medic, Charles Langdon. At the door to the parsonage, Ronald told the doctor that his wife was upset, excitable and nervous because of what she'd seen in the kitchen and what she thought it meant. Dr. Langdon consulted with Ethel, who he judged in a hysterical state. During their conversation, Ethel let him know that she was very jealous of Lottie, but also said she knew that she shouldn't be. Later that night, in Ronald's version, Ethel again tried to leave the bedroom. When he prevented her, she said, quote, I'm sick of it. I'll do away with myself. And then she tried to throw herself into the blazing fireplace. Ronald caught his wife, put her to bed, and then sat up all night watching her. He was also to claim that the very next day, she'd asked him about whether the rope in the shed that he used to tie up the horse would be able to hang her. Ronald told her not to be silly and to try to get some sleep. Ronald would say he'd believed at the time that Ethel's outburst related to the mental strain of being so heavily pregnant. Shortly after the incident in Mr. Mitchell's store, still in January 1927, Lottie Condon left the district for what she said was a nose operation. She went to Wagga Wagga, where she stayed three months with an aunt. Then Lottie went to Melbourne. Ethel gave birth to her baby on the 2nd of February, and they named the girl Alwyn Dorothy Griggs. A month later, Ronald's mother came up from Tasmania to help out. She was still there in April when Ronald took leave from his wife, their new baby, the church and the congregation to take a road trip on his motorbike. 
It's not known how Ronald explained this long absence. But when he returned to Omeo, he decreed that Ethel and the baby must go to Tasmania with his mother. Ethel said no, but he ordered her to go. She did what she was told, but then Ronald had second thoughts. He got on his motorbike and intercepted Ethel in Melbourne, asking her to return to Omeo. She did, but at the end of May, Lottie Condon also came back to the district. Even so, peace appeared to prevail. That was until July when Ronald and Ethel made an overnight visit to the Condon farm. When they'd retired to their room, they had a noisy argument in which Ethel accused him of being outside improperly with Lottie. Ronald told her, I did not see her. Ethel replied, I don't believe you. Ethel remonstrated loudly with him, quote, Mrs. Condon noticed it, and today Mrs. Condon told me that she wished you would not come here so much, and she wished you would not ask the girls to go with you, and that you are not fit to be a minister. Ronald was to say that he'd asked Frances Condon about this the following day, and that Mrs. Condon claimed she'd said no such thing to Ethel. The following day, back at the parsonage, Ethel said to Ronald, quote, Will you let me get a divorce? He asked, on what grounds? She replied, misconduct. He said, how can you prove it? Ethel said, easy enough. Ronald said he'd replied, it's a big step to take, Ethel. If Ethel really had threatened this, then it had to put the fear of godlessness into Ronald, at least in respect to his ambition to be Reverend Ronald Griggs. That was because a divorced man could not be a minister. And a minister who'd been divorced for misconduct? This would mean public shame, not just for him, but for all the Jeeves Griggses back in Tasmania. All of that because Ethel wouldn't believe him when he said there was nothing going on between him and Lottie. But Ronald simply couldn't endure her causing scenes in Omeo anymore. After all, a minister had to be seen to be above reproach. So Ronald offered Ethel an alternative. He'd say that he told her, quote, I think it much better if you were to go to Tasmania for six months. During that time, we will think things over. Don't tell them, either your people or my people, that there is anything wrong. We may come together. We can do that. He was to say that Ethel replied, quote, I have lost all love for you and I will never live with you again. I will do as you want me to do. I will go home, I will come back, but I will not stay. If you will not let me get a divorce now, we will have to get it later. Ronald also said that Ethel had decided she'd return to teaching once they were divorced. Ronald booked Ethel's passage to Tasmania, and this time he didn't try to stop her and the baby from going. Ethel and Alwyn arrived at her family's home in Railton on the 16th of July. To her loved ones, Ethel seemed at first to be unwell, and she told them that Dr. Langdon in Omeo had advised that she take this holiday. Dr. Langdon would later say he might have suggested such a rest during one of their consultations after Alwyn's birth, but he couldn't be sure. Either way, it was a story that her family wouldn't question because Ethel did have a medical condition. This was exophthalmic goiter, which caused a slight protuberance to her eyes and caused restlessness and insomnia. The goiter apparently gave her some trouble while she was in Tasmania. Though, during her stay in Railton with her people, Ethel's health improved and she seemed to be in bright spirits. For the first few weeks, Ethel didn't write to Ronald, but after that, she sent him a letter every week and regularly got his replies. Her mother Annie had no idea about any problems in the marriage. She'd later tell Smith Weekly, quote, I never knew until after she had gone that there was anything amiss between her and her husband. He used to write fairly regularly to her and she would say, ah, another letter from my little hubby and take it to her room to read. Mrs. White continued, she never told me what the letters contained, but I asked her several times whether he had said anything about baby and she said, no, not a word. And when I said I couldn't understand him, she said, oh well, he doesn't care for small babies, but he's sure to get very fond of her when she grows older. So... You see how loyal she was to him all the time. 
Mrs. White might have been in the dark, but Ethel's older sister Edna wasn't. One day, Ethel burst into tears and Edna asked what was wrong. Ethel confessed to the darkness in her life, saying, quote, I've had a rotten spin since getting married. In Ethel's version of that kitchen incident, after she caught Ronald stroking Lottie's head, he demanded she apologise for making accusations, ordered her to bed, and then physically kicked her from the kitchen. Edna asked whether Ronald would now keep company with Lottie because Ethel was so far away. Yet Ethel didn't think so, saying, quote, No, people would talk if they were seen together in my absence. Or at least talk more, because Ethel said to Edna that one or two people had been bold enough to raise the subject with her back in Omeo. Ethel said that when she confronted Ronald about what people were saying about him, he'd accused her of being the one to spread this malicious gossip, and as such, she was hindering his work and damaging his reputation. Despite what had happened and what she suspected, Ethel told Edna she still hoped the marriage could be saved if her husband could be weaned off Lottie Condon. In any case, this would have to happen when the posting finished and the Methodist conference sent them someplace new. In Edna's version of this conversation, Ethel had said, quote, He has promised to leave Omeo in April and I think he will be alright when he gets away. Ethel didn't say anything to her sister about the incident in the store, nor did she say anything about her planning a divorce or returning to teaching. She also didn't say anything about trying to throw herself into the fire or asking about a rope with which to hang herself. To Edna, her sister gave no indication of being suicidal. After about three months at Railton, Ethel went to Franklin where she spent 10 weeks with Ronald's family. During this time, Ronald's mother Kate reportedly said Ethel wasn't sick for a single day, nor did she seem intent on ending her life. Smith's Weekly was later to report of her time in Franklin, quote, While there, young Mrs. Griggs won a host of friends by her happy disposition. Except for occasional walks through the township in the daytime, she spent most of her time within her mother-in-law's house and seemed happy in her devotion to the baby. She was of a rather nervous temperament and frequently expressed the desire to never be left in the home by herself. Around the time Ethel arrived in Franklin, October 1927, Ronald sent her money for the return fare to Omeo and said she should come back whenever she liked. But it wasn't until just after Christmas that he received confirmation from his wife that she'd be back on the 31st of December. Ethel Griggs gave her people every indication that for her, 1928 was going to be a happy new year. Certainly, during her last days with her family, she said nothing about going to Omeo simply to collect her clothes before returning to Tasmania, as Ronald would later say. Surely, if this had been Ethel's intention, she would have simply requested that he forward her things to her, or at least she would have made the long trip there and back without the baby. Instead, Ethel told her mother that, with Ronald's tenure in Omeo soon to end, they'd probably go to the islands to do missionary work as they'd agreed around the time of their marriage. Such postings were for five years though, and such missions were no places for babies. So, Ethel said to her mother, if this was to eventuate, she'd like her to look after Alwyn some of the time they were away. In fact, Ethel said if anything happened to her, she wanted the baby to be in the care of her mother. Then it was time to return to the mainland, as Mrs. White would later tell Smith Weekly, quote, I can still see her standing by the rail of the steamer with the baby on her arm, Ethel waving a handkerchief and baby waving her tiny hand as the boat left shore. Ethel and Alwyn sailed for Melbourne on Thursday the 29th of December 1927. Chatting to a stewardess who brought her a cup of tea, Ethel said she felt slightly seasick. But it was a calm overnight voyage and by morning Ethel was on deck playing happily with Alwyn and told the stewardess that she felt fine. Mother and baby arrived in Melbourne too late for that day's train to Bansdale. They stayed that night at the Victoria Coffee Palace on Collins Street. This was one of the city's big temperance hotels, a sober, safe place for a young mother to stay with her little daughter. The next morning, they got the train east. At around 3pm on New Year's Eve, they arrived at Bansdale and took the motorcar service to Omeo. 
Ethel and the baby shared this vehicle with eight people. The driver and three passengers later saying that she'd seemed well and in good spirits. The car got to Omeo about 9 o'clock and pulled up outside the Hilltop Hotel. Ronald came from the parsonage to greet his wife and baby. He'd later say that he and Ethel had a friendly but restrained reunion. This he thought expected given their circumstances. Ronald gave Ethel a kiss on the cheek and kissed their baby before taking the luggage inside. Ethel looked around the kitchen and said, It hasn't changed much. She put Alwyn on the floor and said, What do you think of the baby? Ronald said the little girl looked well and had grown. In his account, as Ethel was getting Alwyn ready for bed, she suddenly complained of feeling sick and went outside to throw up. After that, she said she felt better and would like some refreshments before having a bath. Ronald made a pot of tea and buttered some bread and made cheese sandwiches. Ethel sipped her brew and had a few bites of buttered bread before saying she felt sick again. Ronald suggested that she have some dry biscuits instead. Ethel took a few more sips of tea, set down the cup and, without a word, rushed outside and was violently ill again. Coming back into the kitchen, Ethel told him what had happened. He said he'd get the baby off to sleep and she might feel better if she had a bath and went to bed. But Ethel Griggs wouldn't feel better as Australia said goodbye to 1927 and welcomed the new year. In just over 48 hours, she'd be dead. In circumstances that would result in what was described at the time as one of the greatest court dramas in Australian history. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the Forgotten Australian miniseries, Thou Shalt Not Kill. Like I said, there are four more instalments coming, and they'll be released over the next two weeks. But you can hear the whole story by getting early access as a Forgotten Australia supporter. To do that, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, this link also being in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting the show. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.